Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Uh, joining uh, me this afternoon, as usual, is Jeff Smelser in Exton. How are you today, Jeff? Hey, Joe. Doing well. Doing great. Good, good. So Chase is not able to be with us, so we have a, uh, a guest on uh, this afternoon, Nathan Combs. Uh, good to see you, Nathan. Thank you, Joe. Good to see and, uh, you as well. You want to tell a little bit, uh, I'm in Elmira, Jeff is in Exton. We've talked about that from time to time. Uh, where are you located? Where do you worship? So I worship at the Tainsboro Church of Christ. We are about 45 minutes northwest of Boston in Massachusetts, near the New Hampshire border. Very good. So we've uh, expanded our, uh, our horizons here. We've gone beyond just uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, in New York, uh, headed up further up the, uh, the northeast coast. Uh, good, to, good to have you with us, Nathan. Um, this afternoon, we're going to talk about Satan and uh, where he's from. Uh, we've spent a couple of weeks talking about angels and uh, different aspects of, of what the Bible teaches about angels and their work and uh, uh, who they are and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so just seemed like uh, to me that maybe this was a, a decent follow-up. Some of even what we talked about the last couple of weeks is tied in uh, to angels. We'll probably hit some of those verses again. Just trying to understand uh, what the scriptures tell us, at least, about angels. Maybe also deal with a couple of, uh, of myths or, or mm -hmm. ideas that people assume are biblical, but that we don't necessarily have passages on, or at least not that I'm aware of. Um, but what are some things that either one of you, Nathan or, or Jeff, what are some things that you hear about Satan that seem biblical uh, or maybe seem right, and maybe they even are, but we just don't know that to be the case? As to you, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> when I hear people talk about Satan, sometimes there seems to be Kind of this sense that the spiritual world operates in sort of a star wars dualism kind of realm that we've got the good and we've got the evil we've got the light and we've got the dark and they're equal in force and power and so, so i think some people think that satan kind of has an unlimited scope of power and influence and when you look i mean throughout scripture that's just not the case at all in fact when you look in job chapter one when Job and God are having a conversation with each other and God says, have you thought about this particular human, this Job, who's my servant and does really well, um, Satan has to get explicit permission from God for each and every single thing that he wants to do to Job. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of, uh, of many that we could look at. But that, that, that conversation, I think, shows us a lot about who he is and his limitations and also um, his goals, what he wants to do. Oh, he went deep with that. I was going to go for the low hanging fruit and talk about Lucifer, but, <laughs> but on the point that he's making, you know, I think it's kind of consistent with something you said last week, Joe, and talking about Satan uh, pictured, for example, in Revelation, the 12th chapter is the counterpart of Michael, the archangel, not as the counterpart of God. Yeah, I, I, I do think that that's helpful. Uh, resist the devil and he'll flee from us. Um, uh, we need to realize that 
that God has power over him. And if we choose to serve God, then we can be victorious over uh, Satan. And uh, we, we are not forced to uh, somehow accept what he is uh, seeking to impose on us. There's a lot that I don't understand about how Satan works today. Uh, I believe that he does. Uh, we see that through scriptures, but um, we certainly do not see him as, as, as Nathan stated, we, we don't see him as this all powerful on the dark side uh, kind of, of sense. I'm wondering if, and, and I don't want to go too far off uh, this, uh, this track, but um, would passages like in Colossians 1 that talks about that we've been translated from the domain of darkness into the light of his beloved son, would, would that maybe cause people to think in those terms? What do you all think? You know, we have the kingdom of the son of his love. We have the kingdom of Christ and Satan's kingdom is spoken of, you know, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, uh, when Jesus is cast out demons and, and they said, well, he just did it by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, Jesus made the point that if that were so, uh, Satan's kingdom would be divided against itself. So Jesus acknowledged that Satan has a kingdom. So it's, I can see what you're saying. That would be easy for somebody to say, well, Christ has got his kingdom. Satan's got his kingdom. So they're kind of like co-equals, but opposites. Um, but just to clarify something I said a moment ago, when I said Satan is not the counterpart of God, I don't mean to say Satan's not evil. Satan is, is evil. And so he's opposed to God, but he's not a peer of God, which is, I think, the point you were making earlier. Right. Um, yeah, good, good point. Uh, so, so let's go to that uh, low-hanging fruit there, uh, Jeff. What, what about Lucifer? I mean, isn't that one of the names for, uh, for Satan? You know, everybody in the world seems to think so. Uh, and, and the fact is the word Lucifer only occurs one time in the Bible and not in most translations. It's in the King James Version in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, um, and it's verse 14, if I recall. Let me get to Isaiah, 12. the 14th chapter. <laughs> Let me get it 14, right. 12, yeah. 14, 12. Um, and uh, I don't, do you, anybody have King James handy? I can yeah. grab it. New, New King James, I've got it here. Uh, uh, New King James does it also. I can read that. Yeah. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. So where it says Lucifer, other translations say, for example, the New American Standard says star of the morning. Uh, I don't know what the ESV says. What do you use, Nathan? Um, yeah, ESV. Yeah, o day nope. son of dawn. Son of dawn, star of the morning, son of dawn. Well, Lucifer would be from a Latin expression. It would mean light carrying or light bearing. Um, so you can see the connection there. But let's look at the context. So if you look at many of the Old Testament prophets, some of the Old Testament prophets, they'll have a section where they talk about God's judgment upon the various nations. And in Isaiah, that section begins in, in, in chapter 13, verse 1. And as you flip the pages, starting in, in Isaiah 13, verse 1, you see prophecies about what's going to happen to Babylon, prophecies about what is going to happen to Assyria, Philistia, Moab, um, prophecies about what's going to happen to Damascus, the capital of Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, so on. In the prophecy about Babylon, which goes from the beginning of chapter 13 through chapter 14, you get this statement 
in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 14. It'll be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you've been enslaved that you will, talking about is God's people, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, and then there's an extended taunt against the king of Babylon. And verse uh, 12 is right in the middle of that taunt against the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon is the one who is pictured as being brought down to, to Sheol, brought bound to, down to death, where reside kings he had previously uh, subjugated and killed. And now they're delighted to see he's brought down to be like one of them. And the irony is he had exalted himself to the heavens, to the stars, but now he has been cut down. He has fallen from heaven. So verse 12 how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. King James, New King James say, Lucifer. It's a name for the king of Babylon. So this is the one place where those two translations have the word Lucifer, and it's not talking about the devil. It's talking about the king of Babylon. Yeah, and, and I can understand if we just start, I don't know, about verse 9 or so of chapter 14, uh, I can really see where people get that idea. Uh, again, the New King James in verse 9 Hell from, the beneath, hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. Um, uh, or verse 13, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Um, you know, I can sort of imagine that scene in the spiritual realm uh, applying to, to Satan. But what's important, as you well stated there, go back and look at the text. Verse uh, verse 4 says it's the king of Babylon. You, you keep on reading. You get over particularly to verses 22 and 23. Again, it says Babylon there. In verse 20, it talks about him being killed, or 19 and 20. It talks about him being killed and not being buried. It's, it's describing a human there in, the, in that text. Um, uh, so uh, I think while we might be tempted to read this text and, and pull it out of context and see that, you know, maybe that's, that's Satan. The greater context demands us to see this as, as a prophecy against Babylon, particularly in the context, the greater context even, of, uh, of Isaiah, where he's going nation after nation uh, prophesying about their demise. So it's a, it's a tricky text that it's just really unfortunate that people haven't bothered to read Isaiah. Uh, they just listened to a couple of verses. we got a question. Is there any danger or harm in making Lucifer to be Satan or vice versa? In other words, if I think this is talking about Satan, does that, is there any danger in my, in my understanding that? It's an interesting question. Well, I mean, maybe just the danger or at least the, the danger of, not understanding how prophetic language works um, uh, and, and not seeing the, the purpose of, of Isaiah. I suspect that a lot of things that's being described of the king of Babylon or later on various other individuals would be true in a, in a similar sense to Satan. The king of Babylon was evil. He was doing horrible things. Uh, he was seeking to uh, rebel against God uh, you see those same sort of principles laid out regarding Satan in various other passages. So I could certainly see that 
somebody might take this and say, okay, well, this is the way that I picture Satan. Okay, I, I don't know that I have a huge problem with that, as long as we understand that that is not what the text is talking about. So, you know, in the text, it describes the arrogance of this king. He's exalted himself, made himself more than, than he is, and he's been brought low. And people talk about Satan, and I think, where did Satan come from? And there's this popular idea that he was an angel, and he um, exalted himself and rebelled against God and instead of submitting, and so he's brought down, and he falls from heaven. And even though the Bible doesn't explicitly describe that, it it, I think it makes sense. I think, after all, we can reason this way. Satan is a created being. He's not self-existent and self-eternal. Otherwise, he'd be God. If he's a created being, then you have to say he's created by God, and God doesn't create evil. So he'd have to have had free will and chose to rebel against God, which would make him arrogant and one who exalted himself, his own will over God's will. And then he, he is brought down. So you could infer all of that. Now, is it dangerous if I think that's what Isaiah 14 is talking about when it's not talking about Satan? I would say it's dangerous to this extent. It, it endangers my accurate understanding of Isaiah and the point that God is making through the prophet Isaiah. There's a point here about God's rule over the nations. There is a point here about arrogance. Um, and maybe I get that if I misunderstand this and thinking it's talking about Satan, I still get that point. But there's also a point here about God's rule over the various nations, and I miss that if I, if I think this is talking about Satan. So there's that danger. Um, maybe to, to touch on the question uh, uh, in a broader sense, some of this same kind of language is used to describe Satan in Revelation 12, what we spoke about briefly uh, last week or the week before, where you have this battle between Michael and, uh, and the dragon, who is identified as the devil and Satan in verse 9. And uh, remember the, the language there in verse 7, war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So not found in heaven any longer kind of sounds like the, the, uh, the Babylonian king in verse 13, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. And then going on down, it talks about how he's going to be brought very low as a result. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that similar language used to describe evil individuals, whether it's the king of Babylon or, or Satan, I'm not at all surprised by that. But, but I would argue that in Revelation 12, the particular circumstances being described are not Satan's becoming evil or being uh, right. demoted from a, a place of standing before God. Uh, it's talking about his fall in connection with the son's ascension. Exactly. And so by virtue of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, his his dying for our sins and is being raised to ascend to the right hand of God, Satan is brought down. Satan falls. And a similar passage to kind of go along with that point would probably be Luke chapter 10, where the 72 disciples come back after Jesus has sent them out. They're really happy about being able to cast out demons, and he is looking at the broader spiritual picture of what is happening with his ascending kingdom. And he says to them, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven very quickly um, he's losing his power 
as Jesus rises. That, that's a really helpful passage. Thanks. Yeah, Luke, eight, uh, Luke 10, uh, 17 and 18 there. Um, uh, that, that's quite beneficial to look at. Clearly, in the, the first century, in Jesus' day and that of his disciples, uh, we're not seeing Satan leave heaven, you know, fall from heaven the way that the, the typical picture is given of, of Satan's uh, uh, beginning. That's not happening at, at this point. And so this is just biblical language to, to talk about uh, the, the failure of those who choose to rebel against the Lord. And then, like we said there in Revelation 12, that's the, the timing of that one in verse 10 is now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. When did all that happen? When did the, the kingdom and salvation come? At Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Um, uh, so, yeah, that kind of language is, is, is biblical language to describe the fall of an individual. Let's, let's take a moment to encourage our viewers. If you want to send us some comments or questions on this topic, we'll be glad to take a look at that. Might be able to work it into our webcast today. I if I can change direction just for a little bit, can I ask a question for you guys? And I think this is a relevant question for a lot of people today. Is Satan real? Or is Satan just a metaphor for evil? And I'll give you uh, this. You know, there are things in the Bible where there's something inanimate that is personified. Um, and take, for example, Romans, the seventh chapter. In Romans, the seventh chapter, uh, sin is personified. Verse uh, 11 says, sin finding occasion through the commandment, beguile me or deceive me, and through it slew me. Sin is being pictured as a person who sees an opportunity and takes advantage. Um, verse 13, sin, that it might be shown to be sin by working death to me that through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become exceeding sinful. Um, and then uh, verse 14, I was sold under sin. Um, I think it's fair to say in that passage, sin is being personified. So some would say, well, that's all Satan is. Satan is just a personification uh, of something, of evil, not really a, a particular being. What would you say to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would let Nathan uh, expound upon that and explain yeah. why. Yeah, um, I think 1 Peter 5 is probably a good passage to kind of connect these dots together. Because in 1 Peter 5, he is personifying Satan as a physical, earthly creature, as a roaring lion. He's not actually a roaring lion. Um, but that picture is being brought out to Peter's audience um, in order to say he, he has those kinds of characteristics. He's a real person. And so that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, you've got to be sober-minded. You've got to be watchful. There is a spiritual being who's really out there trying to devour your souls. Um, and so you've got to treat him as you would treat this ferocious physical creature. Um, it's an interesting point that if Satan were just a metaphor, then you've got something that is being represented as a metaphor, which is Satan, which is now going to be uh, personified in another metaphor. That, that would be a little convoluted. <laughs> be pretty pointless to be watchful for something that you don't actually have to be watchful against. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, I wonder this <clears throat> Hebrews 2 and verse 14, uh, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were in their lifetime subject to bondage. Um, so the devil has this power of death, and maybe that even brings to mind a few other passages, uh, thinking about uh, Satan's um, abilities, um, limited abilities, but abilities nevertheless. Um, I think, you know, I, I suppose somebody could, if they wanted to try to make the argument, could look at nearly every passage and say, well, but that's just a metaphor. Uh, if we begin to do that without a basis, you know, the Romans passage really insists that that's personification. Yeah. Uh, but you, you have an individual spoken all the way through from Genesis 3 to Genesis 20, or uh, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. Um, uh, you know, you have the first two chapters that are, have the absence of Satan and the last two chapters in the Bible, the absence of Satan. Uh, everywhere else, he's present. Um, uh, and so to, to create a 66 books that contain this, uh, this image of a real spiritual being, and then to have that as just personification, would we not be tempted maybe then to do that with Jesus? Sure, sure. Or take this in Revelation, the 12th chapter, you've got, there was war in heaven in verse seven, war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon and the dragon ward and his angels. If, if the dragon, which is said to be Satan in verse nine, is just a personification, if Satan is not really a particular being, then Michael the archangel, we, we, you would assume that, why would you take Michael the archangel or particular being and set him in opposition to something that's really just, and then there's the idea of the devil and his angels I don't know. Wait, I think we talked about this the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure exactly if we can make a one-to-one -one correspondence with the demons and the devil's angels, but I suspect there's a connection there. Jesus talked about uh, casting out demons, and they said he did it by the power of Beelzebub, and he said, if I do that, then, then Satan's kingdom is divided against himself. Satan's divided against himself. The demons were, were real beings. They spoke uh, to Jesus. They knew who Je one demon said, Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know, but who are you in, in Acts the 19th chapter? Uh, if the demons are Satan's agents, as, as and we would conclude they are based on Matthew the 12th chapter and Luke the 10th chapter that you mentioned already, if they are Satan's agents and they are real beings, then that would seem to point again to Satan being a real being. Right. Uh, Matthew 25, 41 as well. Uh, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, it, it really does, it, it makes several of these passages uh, quite difficult to, to understand um, if, if we begin to take this sort of myth or personification. Uh, would it even be proper to say, if that's a if that's just a a personification, then did Genesis three really happen? Yeah. Um, uh, and but Jesus and various other writers of the, the scriptures portray that temptation as a real event. Um, so 
um, John 8, the father of lies and so forth. So we've got a question. Are there people who really say that the devil is just a personification? Oh, yeah. And there are. That's a popular notion uh, amongst some theologians. I don't, I don't know about the Wikipedia article here. I haven't read enough about it to see what it's actually saying. But it's interesting. The first line, just I just now pulled it up, the first line in the Wikipedia article on the devil is, the devil is the personification of evil. Now, I don't know. It may be that they're not necessarily saying he's not a personal being. But there are a lot of people who say that, that the devil is just a personification yeah. of evil. Yeah, uh, I, I've certainly heard that on, on various occasions. Got a, um, in, go ahead. Got a follow-up question. So if the devil is real, um, does the devil explain all evil? To, or to put it this way, uh, Nathan, you're too young to remember Flip Wilson, but maybe you've heard of him. Did you ever hear Flip Wilson? No. Joe, did, did you remember? These, the, the, another snowflake. You know, we, we, Chase isn't on here, but we're facing the same thing. These same four problem. Same the, problem. These, these uh, underprivileged children uh, that. <laughs> Flip Wilson was a comedian, and he would do a, a bit where he would end up saying, The devil made me do it. I think, was it in his Geraldine character? Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He'd say, The devil made me do it. All right. So that, that's my question, really. If you take the devil out of the picture, say the devil died at some point, would, would all the evil go away? Is the, the only reason that people do bad things is because there's a devil. I, you, now, you, now, you could say this. You could say the devil was the occasion of sin entering the world. That would be fair. But can we lay all evil at the foot of the devil and say, well, he's, it's his fault? In exclusively. Yeah. So I don't know how temptation works from the devil's vantage point. I certainly believe that he does tempt. We see that in Genesis 3. But we also see it in Matthew 4, where Jesus is given the opportunity to sin and rejects that. So the I'm not going to do my Geraldine impersonation. Um, but the... <laughs> but the... Uh, uh, the idea that we are somehow forced to by Satan's influence is certainly not biblical. Um, we can resist the devil. We, 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 James, James one comes to mind here. Um, if I can turn over there real quickly, uh, James chapter one, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. I'm tested of God. In other words, James is saying, don't blame God. I'm going to make the point you can't blame the devil either. The devil may have a part in it, but you can't blame the devil. James goes on to say, uh, God cannot be tempted or tested of evil. He himself temp tempts or tests no man. But each man is tempted or tested when he is drawn away by his own lust, by his own mm -hmm. desire and enticed. Um, you know, you can take the devil out of the picture, and there's still the problem that too many of us too often choose to exalt what we want above what, what God's will is. And when we do that, we're doing the same thing that uh, inferentially Satan must have done at some point and has continued to do since. But we can do that whether there's a Satan or not. We can exalt our own wills and our own desires and say, that's what I want to do. And that's going to lead to, that is sin. That's a really good passage to, to keep in mind that, um, whatever is happening in the realm beyond our 
physical vision, uh, we have the opportunity to do right or to do wrong. So let me ask you another question. I got lots of questions today. Is that all right? That is fine. That's why we have Nathan on. <laughs> all right, Nathan, this one's to you. So, you know, growing up, we'd play, we'd play <laughs> basketball or football or baseball. A lot of times we'd pick teams and there'd be two captains. And this captain wants to pick this player, but the other captain wants to pick this player. Should we think of God and the devil that way? God, God wants us and, and the devil wants us. God is for us. The devil's for us. They just want us on their side. The devil wants us on his side. But he said, come on, come on, come on. I, I, I'll help you. I want you on my side. Is the devil for us? Yeah, absolutely not. The devil is pictured as a slave master. Um, in fact, the Hebrews 2 has already been brought up. But in that passage, I mean, God says that Jesus has set us free um, from the, the bonds um, of death and of the devil. Um, and so absolutely, he wants us, but he does not want us for any wholesome good reasons. He wants us so he can kill us, um, whereas Jesus wants to bring us life. And he made no bones about that when he came and, and spoke his gospel message. Um, what so does Satan mean? What does Satan mean? Yeah. Are you taking that, Joe? Or? So, yeah, so Revelation 12 is a handy passage there. Uh, we have the definitions that are given for us of Satan and of, uh, of the devil, right? Um, verse uh, 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world and was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Uh, so, uh, deceiver, right? Well, he is a deceiver, yeah. but, but the word Satan, uh, I, if I understand correctly, I need to go back. I'll, uh, I'll grab a couple of things here. I think it, the idea is accuser. Um, am, I, am I thinking wrong? Yeah, that, that, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. And my understanding is it was a relatively common Hebrew word, so it's not only used to talk about this one spiritual being. Right. It's used in other contexts in the Old Testament to talk about various people being accusers too. Mm -hmm. um, but that this is the most famous and deadly accuser. About so if, he's, if he's accusing, and, and the passage that I think illustrates this notion of, of what Satan wants to accomplish, uh, one passage is Zechariah, the third chapter. Uh, I'll just read, starting in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, here's our, here's our word here, and I've got a note here in my Bible, and it says, or the adversary, or accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Well, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Um, and so here you get the picture. Here, here's somebody, he's in filthy garments, and the devil, Satan, is there. He's eager to point that out. This man is defiled. He's an awful person. The devil's not for him saying, I want to help him. I just want him on my side. The devil wants to bring him down. And, and then through Jesus Christ, uh, our garments can be made white and we can stand before God. And when Satan accuses us, God can say, whatever you've got to say about him, whatever you've got to say about this person, 
his sins have been taken care of. They've been paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. So Satan's not for us. He's against us. He wants to accuse us and bring us down. And so many passages describe uh, Satan in, uh, in that way um, of, of having him be uh, opposed. Um, he stands against Israel in 1 Chronicles 21, um, uh, thinking about uh, him opposing the, the church in, in Revelation uh, as well. Uh, I think that's helpful to see him uh, just seeking to uh, bring accusations. I should have read it even further down there in uh, Revelation 12. It says, then the accuser, um, he, what he's doing is, is seeking to uh, have us fall in, in disfavor with, uh, with the Lord. Um, and that verse in Revelation 12, 9 is also important for the phrase, the ancient serpent, because mm -hmm. that connect, that hyperlinks us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, where the serpent comes into the garden and tempts Eve and entices them to, to have sin uh, in, uh, come into their lives, bringing death. Yeah. So. We've got another question here. I think the question is probably actually referring to Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and following. The question is, how did Satan ask to have um, Peter? Um, was that an example of him wanting to destroy Peter but needed to ask for permission? Then how does that compare to Satan entering into Judas in 22.3? I actually want to go to that in just a minute. But first of all, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and following, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Behold, Satan asked to have you that he might sift you as wheat. And the you there is plural. Uh, he asked to have Jesus' disciples that he might sift them as wheat. But Jesus says, I made supplication for thee. And that's singular. Peter, uh, Jesus prayed specifically for Peter that Peter's faith fail not, and then that Peter would turn again. And when he had turned again, he had established his brethren. So how did Satan ask to have Peter? Really, he asked to have all of them. I'm not sure exactly. This gets to a question, what in the world is Satan thinking? Uh, there's a lot of times when you gotta, you've got to scratch your head saying, did Satan really think that, that this was going to work? Did Satan really think, you know, he comes before God and he wants to accuse Job. And in that instance, God did let him afflict Job, but with limitations, as you pointed out earlier, Nathan. When he comes and he says, can I have your disciples? What is he thinking? Uh, but that's what he asked for. So does, does that help us then to see what Satan's goal is, the, the request for that, that sifting uh, we see what happens to Peter and the other apostles and that they are uh, scattered. We see Satan entering Judas's heart. Was that John 13, 2, maybe something like that? Um, uh, you know, you, you see some of those instances where Satan does have his effect upon the, the disciples. That's what he's seeking to do is to, to draw us away from uh, the will of God. Let's connect that with what we were just talking about. So this question, you mentioned John 13. Did Satan have anything to do with Jesus being crucified? What did you just quote? 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, Satan entered Judas's heart to go and betray him. Yes. So, all right. So Judas is the one who betrays Jesus, turns him over to the, the people who will ultimately call out for his crucifixion. And Satan entered into Judas's heart. So Satan had something to do with uh, Jesus' crucifixion. So, um, hang on here, about to lose my train of thought, or already did. We were just talking previously about Satan asking, can I have the disciples? And I was saying, sometimes it just befuddles me, what is he thinking? So what was, what was Satan thinking when he works to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus? What was he thinking? And then what was he thinking as Jesus dies on the cross? And what reality was being accomplished? So I guess as I tried to piece some of this together in my own head, and please feel free to, to help me clarify this even, uh, how often is evil rational and, and logical and, uh, and, and reasoned? Um, you know, you have Satan trying to destroy Jesus in, in many different ways. And every time it seems as if what God then does is, takes the stick that's in Satan's hand and beats Satan over the head with it. Um, uh, you know, uh, Satan has these weird ideas of how to defeat Jesus, and God just weaves those plan, those things right through his plan, or, or that's a part of his plan, maybe a better way of saying it, uh, considering the Old Testament prophecies. Um, but yeah, Satan is not reasonable in, uh, in what he's seeking to do. I love your question. How often is, is evil reasonable? You know, people talk about Satan and the crucifixion, and they think, didn't Satan understand when Jesus dies on the cross? That's really taking away our sins so that Jesus is, to put it in terms of Matthew 12, Jesus is entering the house of the strong man, binding him and taking what was his. Jesus is taking us away from Satan. Doesn't he realize that by the crucifixion, Jesus is gaining the victory, and, and then Jesus is raised from the dead and takes away Satan's power? How often, how did you say, it? how often is Satan, I mean, how often is evil reasonable? Yeah. Here, let me illustrate it this way. There's a passage in 2 Kings, the sixth chapter. This is where the king of Syria is trying to, to ambush the king of Israel. Yeah. And he keeps failing. Every time he sets it up, the king of Israel is not there. Well, it turns out that Elisha the prophet is telling the king of Israel, don't go to this spot, you'll be ambushed. And so the king of, of Syria is going, how does the king of Israel always know? And he thinks he's got a spy in his own midst that's reporting to the king of Israel his plans. And his servants tell him, no, 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 no. There's a prophet, Elisha. He knows the very things you say in your bedroom. That's how the king of Israel is avoiding you. Elisha's telling him. So what does the king of Syria then do? Let's go let's circle Elisha's house and take him captive. Yeah, like he doesn't think Elisha's going to see that one coming too. <laughs> yeah, let's let's sneak up on the guy who knows what's going on in my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, we laugh at that, but maybe we should realize Satan is not some omnipotent being. He makes the same kinds of unreasonable mistakes that we sometimes do ourselves when we do the stupid thing that's sinful and we don't look past the end of our nose. No, that, that is entirely right. And he's so predictable because 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, I mean, Paul even says to the Corinthian Christians that we're not ignorant 
of his designs. Mm -hmm. So we, we're not, we, we can be outwitted by him if we don't take the time to read our Bibles. Um, but he, he is not this unpredictable person. He, he, he works in these specific ways. Um, and so we can understand that. Um, you know, John chapter 8, just to pile on the passages, um, Jesus himself said, um, as he's talking to Pharisees who are consumed by the devil, the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. So it really was not a shock that as Jesus comes along and tries to establish this kingdom, and, and then does, um, that the murderer from the beginning would then try to murder him. <laughs> Except that this time, um, it, it smacked him in the face. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I think that is is helpful. Um, think about how it'd be interesting to just sort of peruse through the scriptures, beginning in Genesis three, and and to see how many times God uses Satan's actions to bring about His glory and His will. Um, you know, we see that within the prophecies concerning Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. But I'm thinking even of passages like 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 7 and following, talking about the thorn in the flesh for, uh, for Paul. Um, it says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn of the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. Uh, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So here is something that's being sent by Satan. God is going to use that, or, and, and Paul is going to recognize that, um, uh, to keep him from being exalted above measure. You know, uh, here Satan is, has sent this or, or is a part of this, and yet what it's doing is keeping Paul humble, keeping him reliant upon the Lord. Keeping um, him from becoming like Satan. Good point. Yeah. Very good. Well, other thoughts, we've sort of uh, ran through various passages. We really didn't deal, deal much with Genesis 3. Uh, we don't see his beginning there, but we see him introduced to us. He was already in existence be, before that, and we just don't know uh, uh, anything beyond that, right? And it's interesting, you may have said this a minute ago, but Nathan, you were referring to John uh, the eighth chapter where it refers to Satan as a murderer from the beginning or a liar from the beginning and a murderer or a liar and the father of liars. And um, that's really how we know that it's Satan, that and Revelation 12 are how we know that it's Satan who's speaking through the serpent in Genesis 3 because Genesis doesn't tell us that it's Satan or the mm -hmm. devil who speaks through the serpent. But then when Jesus refers back to that, saying he was a murderer from the beginning, he's a liar and the father of liars. Well, he lied and said they would not die. And by that lie, he brought about their death. He murdered them. And then Revelation chapter 12 simply describes the dragon as the devil, as Satan, as the, that old serpent. And so you put all that together and it's clear that that was the devil speaking through that. And, and, and all throughout scripture, we see that we have the power to decide 
you know, we see that in the contrast between Eve and Jesus in their respective uh, um, temptations um, and various other cases where we talked about. I don't think we've touched on 1 John 3. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Uh, so we, we have this choice to, to be either uh, children of God or children of the devil. And the way that that's determined is by who we decide to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe close with this. If we choose not to follow God, we're going to share the devil's fate. That's the point in Matthew 25, 41. He'll say to those on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Yep, exactly. Well, we are out of time. Uh, thanks, Jeff, and especially thanks, Nathan, for, uh, for joining us. I hope this isn't the, the last time, but I'm glad that we were able to have you on now for the first time. Uh, introduced you to uh, uh, our uh, wit and wisdom, um, and so now you'll be even more prepared to, to, uh, to put up with us if uh, we have more opportunities. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for having the questions and comments that you uh, contributed as well. Go ahead, Nathan. I was just going to say thanks for having me on. Very good. Uh, God bless you all, and uh, look forward to seeing you next Wednesday, then, Lord willing.